Well, my name is Mary, and I'm a very grateful and a very happy member of Al-Anon. And it's, um, it's very emotional to stand up here. You wonder why you're given 50 years. There's a scattering of us who have been left. There's many, many memories. There's many, many wonderful things. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous gave sobriety as a gift to my husband, and it's given sobriety as a gift to members of my family. And sobriety isn't given to everybody. You know, there's people who work very hard and try very hard, and they are never received sobriety. And my husband was always very, very thankful for the gift of sobriety. And then I have found a life of happiness. It's a journey of happiness. I had to decide what I wanted in my life for happiness. And the Fellowship of Al-Anon has given me a journey of happiness. And I'm just so happy to be here today. It just It's a wonderful roundup. It's a warm roundup. There's so many people that I know. I made some new friends already. But everybody's so happy and kind to us, and I have a very, very simple Al-Anon program. You know, we've had all these other speakers, and we are the ones who love you and marry you, and we have your children, and you can see that if we're going to coexist, we have to have a program, because you're quite flamboyant people. <laughs> and... and um, I have a very, very simple Al-Anon program, but I have prayed every day since I was asked that I could possibly get myself out of the way and I would be able to say something that would help somebody with their Al-Anon program. Everything I have is what has been given to me by you people. There's nothing original and there certainly is nothing profound like the people before us, but it's... um, it has made a very full, full capacity living for me. And today my life is very full and it's happy. And it's, it's a very emotional thing to be here with some of the people who have been around us for a long, long time. And you wonder why God willing that we have been spared when there's so many good people who have gone before. And so I think those of us who are left, we have a responsibility to reach out and help others. And I would like, um, well, first to say that I, uh, I'll tell my simple story. I just, uh, there was something else I wanted to say first, but I can't even think now in my mind. Anyway, I had just finished university. I had the world at my feet, and I met a fellow who drank quite a bit in the community. In fact, he was the best drinker in the community. <laughs> and people have said to me, how come that you ever married? I, my husband always gave me permission to use that he was an alcoholic and that he was a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But people have said to me, how come that you married an alcoholic? Well, my goodness, it's quite simple. You know, you, you give us lots of promises. You're good looking. You're good dancers. You're good lovers. You, uh, everything. You, you, you put the world at our feet. And you're very convincing. And you know all the right answers. And you're fun. You're fun to be with. And life was exciting. In fact, my husband, the first night we met, and the, because we're feeling people, he asked me to marry him. Well, you know, it's, uh, you're, always, you're always in a hurry. <laughs> and, so, and so we did. We didn't, it was a few years, a little while later, but then also, and, um, oh, he was an exciting man, and, uh, but then when it came that we were wanting to get married, and my father was absolutely horrified because my father drank, but he uh, he certainly didn't think that this fellow was a very good prospect for a husband. So anyway, and, and uh, 
we live in a very political uh, community, and, uh, you know, Saskatchewan, we do. We all know exactly where we vote. My father was a very, very good liberal, and he finally, this was the final blow. He said, Mary, you can't marry that man. He's a conservative. <laughs> and we're really an endangered species, but we might, we're, we are starting to make a comeback. <laughs> But anyway, we got married, and it was just like my father had told me. It, uh, things started to go bad, and things weren't very good, and we had two children, and I won't go into all that. I've had all the breaking promises. I, uh, uh, it was just as it always is. There's no sense going through all that. But And then one night we were in Saskatoon, and uh, I was always afraid of poker. I, uh, my father drank. I'd always seen uh, liquor used. I wasn't really afraid that much of liquor, but I was horrified of gambling. And there was two people, Pat and Henry, and I'm sure that every little town has a Pat and Henry. And Tommy came back up to the room, and he'd been with Pat and Henry. He'd been in a poker game, and he was very drunk. And we had my one, my oldest child, Eddie, was playing on the hotel room floor with the little traditional silver cup with his name written on it and Tommy fell over it and he said that's it he said uh, you phone Ford Beavis for Alcoholics Anonymous now he had come from a home where there had been problems with alcohol and he was aware he had told me before we were married he said I will never put you through what my mother has gone through and so I always think that I have benefited from what my mother-in-law her life and anyway, he he was very aware of his drinking and all the problems. I hadn't. I was so busy raising children and being pregnant and all the rest of it that I I certainly knew we had uh, problems. But I I had never heard of AA. But Tommy had had the 20 questions. And anyway, this is the most beautiful part of our story. I think is that when I got the telephone, I got the telephone booked up for Beavis's and Hazel, his good wife, answered. And I just uh, outlined the problem to her, and she said, Tommy Myers, we have been waiting for you for a long, long time. <laughs> and that, to me, was really, to me, it's just like the prodigal son, and I think it's like all of us are yet today. We know the people in the community who are having trouble and who need help. And we are watching and waiting, and I think that's part of our third legacy, that we are responsible when somebody reaches out somewhere for help, that we are there. And it's like the prodigal son. The father saw him coming because he had been watching from a long way off. And I hope that's the way we are in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, that we are watching from a long way off and we see people when they need help and we are there to help them. And that was the beginning of an entirely new life for us and a wonderful life. Tommy loved his AA. He, he, just, uh, he met people at the first meeting we went to and they, uh, he, he liked everybody there. And they told us, and much of my story is almost more of the AA book because we didn't have any Al-Anon. But they told us several things. They said, get down on your knees and pray, go to meetings, and read that little 24-hour book from Hazleton, and go to roundups. And that has really been the story of my life for the last 50 years. And that, uh, when Tommy came into AA, that was December the 2nd of 1951. And then in the first part of January, 
there was a fellow called Elmer, and then I think on the 16th of January, Cecil arrived. And, this, and we stayed close because there were so few of us. We visited each other's homes. Our meetings were held in the homes. And then it wasn't too long before there was another fellow who lived three-quarters of a mile across the way apiece, and he came. He'd heard that Tommy had quit drinking, and he came over one night, and he, Tommy was away, and we visited for a long time. And then when Tommy came home, he, um, uh, he said, I'm going to come in after harvest. And Tommy said, why don't you come in right now? And anyway, he slammed, I remember he left the kitchen and he slammed both the screen door and the other door and he was gone. And then in about two days later, and like Tommy said, if you don't come now, there won't be any harvest. And then two days later, he came back and he said, yes, I will join. And his name was Lauren and I was able to phone him yesterday and he had 50 years in AA yesterday. This is the wonderful part. We've all stayed close. And then we went, then it was, this was in January and February. Then we had another member from up at Rosetown. And then in September or October, we went to an AA roundup in Moose Jaw. And it was wonderful. And we were in the basement of a co-op hall where there was asbestos lined all the heat pipes, you know. And we sat on benches. And we all, the women, we all wore hats and gloves, and we were very proper. And there was a fellow there called George Strachan, who gave, he was a wonderful speaker. He was very dapper. He was exceedingly, uh, everything shone. His, his glasses shone and his coat, and he just was so, because he told about the life where he'd been where things had not been so good. And he talked about his recovery, and he gave us the total AA program. And it is such a spiritual experience, the first time that you are ever given the whole AA program. And it's just as if heaven had descended upon us, and we saw a total vision of a new life, of what we could have, and it was a good life. And the ones of us were there, Elmer and Cecil were there, and they had come in what they used to call a Studebaker. Like as Cecil will say, people don't even know what a Studebaker is. And there was a wonderful fellow there, the people from, Sask from Saskatchewan will know. There was a fellow called Jake Calder. He was a, like a great big Newfoundland dog, and he stood at the back of the, but he was a wonderful man, and a face with so much compassion. And it was just, it was just a wonderful experience, and when that man, uh, George Strachan, came down from the podium to walk down the aisle, we all reached out to touch his clothes. It was just, it was just so wonderful. And then they asked for call-up speakers, and my husband, he got up and he, he said, well, he knew that AA was as close as the nearest telephone, because we were 100 miles from the first day, nearest AA group. And then there was a skinny, scrawny fellow got up who wasn't very eloquent, and his clothes didn't match, and he didn't look very great, and his hands hung out the end of his sleeves, and his name was Cease. <laughs> and, and he got up to speak, and you know, he spoke on enthusiasm. And it was wonderful, and he just had a few sentences 
But aren't we fortunate that we have people like Cease, and I mean, that he does personify enthusiasm and enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous. And as some of the chair people have said over here, that we have, that's a gift. It's a gift to have a person like Cecil who has done all that for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And why is it that we are still privileged to be walking together in these fellowships? There are so very many good people who are gone, and then there's a few of us who are still here today, and it's, we're truly blessed to have these people who are working with us and still so dedicated and doing things, and uh, I hope that we really appreciate people like him. It was wonderful. And then we went uh, OAA. We had, we, and the reason we were all so close out there in Saskatchewan and Angus, we just lost Angus. We had Max C. We had Tommy Breen and, and Tommy Grafton. We had all three Tommies. And well, Tommy Breen, he wasn't married, but Tommy Grafton and us, we were trying to see who had the most kids the fastest. He ended up with nine, and we only ended up with six. But every time we went to a roundup, and then one, we came over here to Calgary, and I remember one fellow said to Tommy, he said, is that Mary, is that the baby she was having last year, or is this another baby? Because <laughs> every spring we were pregnant. But anyway, we had a wonderful time, and we met in the homes, and we were always very close. And they, uh, we used to have, the, then we would, uh, there would be people come to the meetings for seven or eight, and of course women didn't work in those days. And then after the meeting was over, the men would play up the river, or, and they called themselves the Rump Society. And they would stay till four or five in the morning, and they would talk. Like you know, we we had the big AA book, but they really didn't know what what this fellowship was, and it was so precious, and they didn't want to lose it, and they would just sort of. Uh, grind it out or talk or uh, try to learn from each other and devise what this was all about. And I can't say enough of, of how close we were because we were so afraid of losing it. It was such a wonderful gift that we had been given. And then there came a time, you know, we, we went into a business. We had this, uh, the cattle feeding business, which is an exciting business. And uh, it was after the war, I tried to tell my children the, the lid was off of things and everything was flourishing and life was exciting after the war. But then there came the death of my father and then I don't know if it, uh, like I had lost my mother as a young child and I was very close to my father and then when he died I just felt that the uh, life had ended and uh, there was no reason for this because I had a nice family, I had a nice home, I had a, father, a husband who loved me because he told me so. It became easy to say I love you in our home. And I came home and there was I love you written on the top of the dust on top of the, the television set. And that also was part of AA and Al-Anon, to learn to say I love you. But I was very, very unhappy within myself. And I don't know if, if God touches each of us in our own time. Uh, I had everything to have, but I felt a hollowness and an emptiness within. And I don't know why we didn't really have Al-Anon at that time. We uh, we just we had a piece of paper first from New York that just told us a little bit about AA. But we never ever thought of using the AA steps for ourselves. And then there was two members, Joan and Alva. They went up to Prince Albert to a roundup, and they heard about AA or Al-Anon, and they said we're going to start an Al-Anon group and we're going to have a meeting every Monday night at the same time as the men did. 
And so that was the start of our Al-Anon. And then we had a meeting at Elro at Houghton. We used to have the roundups in Houghton. We'd have up to 300, and we would cook the turkeys and the potatoes and the pies and that ourselves. And, uh, you know, it wasn't any big deal. And anyway, we had these wonderful, one time, I remember I sent some pies up with Cecil, like uh, people would come to the house first, and, and I sent some uh, pies up with Cecil, and they were still hot, and the lady at the, said, uh, where did you get these pies? To Cecil, oh, he said, I just brought them. And they from PA, and they were still hot. <laughs> and we, anyway, at this particular roundup, and I was very, very unhappy, and I had no reason to be. But we had this lady, Ruth Murray, and she lived with her father. Um, what's his first name? Murray, Dave, Dave Murray, and he was a wonderful fellow. He was. A short fellow, and he was round, and he looked a little bit like Santa Claus. And he was sort of the old deacon of the AAs at that time. We didn't have many old ones, but anyway. And he had a cane, and when all the he would sit on a chair near the front row, and when any of the AA people went by, and especially the newcomers, he would poke them with this cane, and he'd say, "Are you grateful?" And, it was, and he just was a wonderful man. And I really liked his dear wife, Ruth. And I said to Ruth, and you wonder why sometimes you talk to people in the corner. I said, Ruth, I have everything that I should be happy for, but I just feel so empty and unhappy. And she said, Mary, why don't you really try living the Al-Anon program? And this is my desperation, and I think each person... Each, each person reaches their own degree of desperation and man's desperation is always God's opportunity and I think we, we go through different periods of desperation in our lives and then we find our spiritual strength in direct comparison to our degree of desperation and I was really very unhappy I think much of it was because Tommy was so happy he was so full of AA and I, I wanted what he had and even some of the other members who came to our group the group met in our basement for 10 years and they were happy and uh, bubbly and I really wanted what they had and so very very briefly because it was so important to me but I set out a program for myself that I would take one step at a time and I would study that step and I would read and most of all I would listen sometimes it's very hard for women to listen. But anyway, I would listen and I would learn. And so I did. And I very basically I found that first step was that my life was a mess and it was unmanageable. And Wesley Perry, she used to always come and he talked about that blank, that blank in the first step where then you find a manager. Like there's two parts to the first step, that you are unmanageable and then you find an answer. So the first step was myself as a mess and I needed help and the second step was a God of my own understanding which I've always and I'm thankful for that I've always been given a concept of a loving happy friendly God not a strict uh, judgmental God so there was myself and there was God and then the third step to me is the most beautiful step of the whole program you made a decision to turn your life and your will over to the care of God. And those three words, that we are given this opportunity to turn our life and our will over to the care of God, as we understand Him. 
isn't it absolutely wonderful that we have that privilege or we have that opportunity or that God even, you know, sometimes you wonder, is God even willing to accept you? You know, someday he must have his doubts. But anyway, those three words, the care of God as I understand him. And I remember the first day I had studied step one and two and I really didn't like this step three. It's the independence and contrariness. I always say I'm not named Mary Mary quite contrary for nothing. There was no way I wanted to release my life and my will. My life and then my will is perhaps how I feel inside and my life is, is the physical part of yourself. But I can remember the day that I said, all right, you're either going to do step three or you're going to remove yourself from the Al-Anon program. You cannot be a phony any longer. Because I really was a phony. You know, I went to Al-Anon meetings. I chaired them. You can read them. You can do them. But I really wasn't into the Al-Anon program. I hadn't really made that total commitment. And I remember that first day I said to this God of my own understanding, just take over my life for this day. And to me it was like when you go into the water or into a lake and you do the dead man's float. And you go and if you're afraid of water but you lie down in the water and the water takes you and holds you up and carries you along and takes care of you. And you float. And that was exactly the way it was with turning my life and my will over to the care of God. And there seemed to be a presence with you and a, and, a, and a strength and a comfort and, and I suppose the word love. There was a presence and a love and a caring with you. And it really hasn't, at times it has left me, but I always know where the answer is. And it's in that third step to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him. And then there's the fourth step. And it, things became easy after that. I said, okay, God, let's you and I do this fourth step together. Let's you and I do the fifth step together. And so I wrote down everything for this fourth step and took a very careful inventory because I wanted what my husband had. I really wanted the answers and I wanted the full capacity and I didn't want to shortchange myself. And like Tommy and you know, we have those, like this, see at home we had the AA and Al-Anon meetings and every Monday night, the first Monday of the, the last Monday of the month, we had our joint meeting and we were read step chapter 5 of how it works and Mike we had this wonderful Mike and he always read how it works and when Mike read you listened and there was these things like first things like total commitment rigorous honesty and half measures availeth you nothing and I really didn't like that half measures availeth you nothing I thought if I give half my program half my life to this program why don't I get half the benefits but it says, no, you half measures, you get nothing. And I wanted the maximum. I wanted what these other people had. So I tried to do a very detailed fourth step. And like, and honesty, that rigorous honesty. Like Tommy used to say, it's very hard to find an honest man, but it's impossible to find a completely honest woman. <laughs> and also as Cecil always says too, we can look pretty nice on the outside, but how do you really look on the inside? Because we have lots of, of uh, what do you call, enhancements. We have lots of things we can fix ourselves up. I mean, the men are starting to get a few of them too. 
but we really can fix ourselves up pretty nice. We can color our hair and we pull it in down below and we stick it up out, out in front. And we can really look pretty nice on the outside, but how do we really look on the inside? And that rigorous honesty. And so away we went and then I went and I took my fifth step to the local minister. It was a very, very hard decision to make this appointment. But our minister, he was going, we were going through some very radical changes in our church and he was making some very difficult decisions in his life. And I took this fifth step and fourth step to him and uh, there's, there's times in your life when you are on the complete vibes with another person, a man to man, and uh, you completely reveal yourself and, and so does he about your emotions, your feelings, your ambitions, what you want out of life and uh, everything about yourself. It's an absolutely wonderful experience. It's an exhilaration. The fourth and fifth step to me was you take an inventory, you, you see your journey of life this far in life, it's like climbing a mountain and then you're up on the top of this mountain and for once in life you see the promise of this fellowship of what you can do with your life and the fullness and the joy and the happiness and everything that this fellowship can give you. And that was what I experienced that day with that minister. And we sort of did away with the past, we discussed it, we got rid of that and we saw a promise of the future. And then to me it's always been really rather important to get down on your knees and pray. Sometimes I've never understood it, but I asked that minister to get down on his knees and pray and he really wasn't too uh, agreeable. But anyway, I, we got down on our knees and we prayed, much to his discomfort. <laughs> anyway, and then I was able to go to my sponsor at the time. I was, it was wonderful. And I've, we've always tried so hard to get other people to take that fourth and fifth step. It's the total turning point of your life in the fellowship. I went to see my sponsor, and her husband said to her, he said, what's the matter with Mary? He said, she's just on cloud nine. I don't care for that expression, but he could notice such a difference. Life was wonderful. And then, of course, you go on to step six and seven with your... Your, your, your character defects and the step six I realized was just to become willing that God remove these, these defects of character and then of course step seven and I don't know why it has always amused me so much but somebody said that Bill W when he wrote the book he didn't want to use the word character defects twice so he used that word shortcomings he said to ask God to remove your shortcomings well, the only time I had ever heard the word shortcomings before was at the Oscars. One time there was the Oscars years ago, and they all of a sudden they were presenting the Oscars, and it was when we had the time of, of stripping and that, and the fellow came across the stage in his birthday suit, and the, the MC said, here comes so-and-so showing his shortcomings. <laughs> and so I always think of the shortcomings, but perhaps it, it is. 
almost in, um, you know, step four and five, it's almost as if you do go in your nakedness and you reveal yourself to God and to another human being. And it's such a clearing house of all, I mean, there's the, where's the wreckage of the past? It was just the unnecessary little things that I had got, but the guilt and the things that bothered me. And anyway, step six and seven, and then eight and nine, where you make a list of all the persons you had harmed. And of course, most of all was the fellow fact that I had shortchanged myself by not getting into this program earlier, like with the dedication. And anyway, and then there was my sister, and it's my only sister, and she had had some problems in her life, and oh, I had helped her, but I hadn't gone the extra mile. And I had guilt about this, you know, and of course I'm 10 years younger than her, and I had been a brat. And I mean, some of you that, that maybe you have older sisters and brothers, and they, uh, they dominate your life, and you're not too happy about it all. And anyway, when her time came that she needed me, I thought, well, this is my time to retaliate. And you know, there's no happiness in retaliating. But anyway, I prayed about it, and I, at one time we were away, and we talked about it, and I asked for her forgiveness, and she, of course, knew nothing about how I felt. You see, we build up these walls around us of guilt, and that we build up the walls, and the other people aren't even aware of the walls that we have. And then we have to remove those walls. And so we, we learn to love each other, and it's most important to me, because now my sister is in a home with Alzheimer's, and I can go and hold her hand and love her and be near to her and be a help to her. And if it hadn't been for the program of Al-Anon, I wouldn't have this relationship with my sister. And there's so many other things that that step eight and nine teaches us how to be happy with the people around us and how to make our amends. And if it hadn't been for the program, I wouldn't have made those amends. This is why this program is so wonderful to me, that it makes you do these things. And then, of course, step 10. My husband was always very uh, sincere about that, that we never went to, the sun never went down on a quarrel. We always made, we got uh, peace in our household before the sun went down. We wouldn't carry a disagreement or a fight or a quarrel into the next day. And I'm very thankful to him for that. And then we had step 11, which was prayer and meditation. And Joan, I thought maybe Joan would be here today, but I remember Joan came to our Al-Anon meeting and she said so very simply, she said, you know, prayer and meditation. Prayer is when you ask God and meditation is when you are quiet and you listen. And I love it's different times in that little 24-hour day book, be still and know that I am God. And prayer and meditation, and then of course step 12, was simply that you have a change of attitude as the result, as people have said in our group, the. It's, there's only one result of going through that steps, and that's a change of spiritual awakening, which is simply a change of attitude. And you see the world, and you see your friends, and you see your family. You see everybody in an entirely different light. And to the very best of your ability, you function in, the, in a different way and on a different plateau. And it's wonderful. And nowhere else in my life, and I've been involved in very many things, was I ever given the tools to do this, like really a self-improvement or a spiritual journey to get closer to a God of your own understanding. And that's why I'm so grateful to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. 
and I have many, many imperfections. I, st- I still have times, I have times of doubt, when I, and then I have times of doubt when I wonder, is this, is this all worthwhile? Is this program working? But on September the 14th, which is also our wedding anniversary, it says right in that 24-hour day book, Dear God, help me in my disbelief. Sometimes we have to go to God and ask for him to restore our faith. Sometimes I doubt my faith. But then there's you people there, and it's wonderful. Anyway, this was, and then so many things happened. And you know the most wonderful thing that my husband did? He was a very good member of AA. He never told me when I was groping and I was reading and I was struggling. He never told me what the answer was. He didn't say read chapter this or do that. He let me find my own program in my own simple way and to find my own strength and my own convictions and my own help. It's a wonderful gift because, you know, some of us who live with very strong members of AA, they can just tell you, you know, this is what you should do and you should do this and you should do that. And it's, it's wonderful to let them find your own way. And, you know, I found my own identity. Like I was no longer Tommy's wife, which is, you know, we're going through a marriage revolution now and people, it's an altogether different concept of what it was when I was married. But, uh, and you know, then you used to be the wife on your, on your driver's license. That really got me. You were a housewife. I mean, I'm not a wife to the house. I could at least put on my driver's license. I'm Tommy's wife. I, there's, there's, there's things I'm rebellious about. And I became my own identity, and it was wonderful. And you found your own program. It's a very, very great gift. We went to Regina, and Tommy gave a talk down there. We went to visit some people called Johnny and Dell. We went into their visit, and there was a Owen Still. I think he was a, he was a minister who did an awful lot for AA and Al-Anon in Saskatchewan. He was with us, and we stayed till three or four in the morning. You know, we still just couldn't absolutely get enough of these programs. It was just still so exciting. We visited till three or four in the morning, and then we drove home from Regina, which is 200 miles and three hours. And Tommy and I were able to to hold hands as we drove and talk about what we had in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And you see, because I had now found my own Al-Anon program, I had something to discuss with him and to talk with him and to share with him. And there were so many nice things happened. And one day he came home, and he we have an office across the yard, and he was a big man and a happy man, but he, uh, you know, the alcoholics are so very sensitive too. And he came back, and he, a fellow had come in. He was a member who had also been trying AA, and he... Um, he was very provoked at Tommy. I don't know. He tore a strip off of one side and up the, down the other, and uh, Tommy was very hurt. And he came home and he said, uh, "You love me, don't you?" And I said, "Oh my, yes." I said, "I do love you, and I believe in you." And uh, he said, "Well, I'm not very lovable." And I said, "Oh well, I know." I said, "Alcoholics." <laughs> There's, there's times that you really aren't very lovable, but for today, I do love you and I do believe in you. And again, because of what I had found out, we were able to make a fresh pot of coffee and sit down and drink this coffee and talk about it. He always was so full of gratitude. Then there came Christmas time, and we, um, uh, Tommy was again 
with gratitude, and we had the six children by now, and he asked them to to kneel down around the coffee table on Christmas morning after friends after the gifts were open, and to express gratitude for what we had. And um, anyway, there was one rebellious son. He didn't want to. He's always didn't want to put his head down, and uh, you know he he always caused us a bit of trouble. And uh, but there we were. And then Christmas was over, and then we had another day in January, and there was a Jack C. He used to have a radio program from up at uh, Prince Albert at the Manhattan Ballroom. He called it the Cotton Pickers. And these are the days of the uh, the radio on Saturday afternoon. And anyway, he told old jokes, but we all laughed, and then he played music, and uh, it was wonderful. And he was telling these old jokes, and so I phoned Tommy over at the office. I said... Tommy, come on over and listen to this Jack C. He lives out here now at Sylvan Lake or someplace. Anyway, uh, so Tommy came home and we drank some more coffee and we just had a wonderful, lovely afternoon. And again, Tommy spoke of gratitude. And then we had supper and he came home that night and all of a sudden we were sitting on the Chesterfield. He walked to the kitchen and I heard a a thump on the floor, and he he died of a heart attack on our kitchen floor. And so, uh, everything that we had, everything that Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon had given us, I felt at the time was gone. But you know, you people were there, Joan and Neil were there, it was an extremely cold night in January of 1969. I know that Joan and Neil left five children. I don't know who they had for babysitters. There was a blizzard. It was about 30 below, and they lived about 35 miles away. Mike was there. Garnet was there. All the names were there. Ken and Eleanor were there, and Don and Doreen and George and Isabel, everybody. You were there. Eleanor stayed with me, and it was difficult, but anyway. And people have said to me, you know, everything was gone. Your marriage is gone. Your husband is gone. You, uh, it's a time of fear. But again, you people were all there. And Tommy left me with a challenge. He left me with a program. He left me with all you people as friends. That's, those are all gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And so, finally, uh, there's times of fear. Your, your mind spirals with fear. This is 31 years ago or so. We, I mean, sort of death wasn't as prevalent as it seems to be now in our communities. Tommy was 49 years old. And just we just had built this business. It was exciting, everything. But then... Things started to rally forth. First, there came a letter in the mail from a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was one or two sentences at the top, and there was one or two sentences at the bottom. But right in the middle of this letter was these words, I believe in you and I love you. And I realized how these two wonderful fellowships that we walk hand in hand, and we're given this privilege of walking down these parallel paths together. And this is what we're given and we're blessed in our own time, that we can do these things and we can strengthen each other and believe in each other 
each in our own time when we need each other. And these are what the members of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have given me. Whenever my need has been great, you people have been there. And the fellow, may I say, who wrote the letters is sitting in the front. So then an accountant came. We had lots of troubles with our business, cattle business. It's a frightfully exciting business. It's like an addiction. Everybody still has, always has a cow out in the back quarter. Anyway, there was this accountant. We, the one fellow said, you're in so much debt, there's no way you can possibly ever get out of debt. But this one fellow, he, was, he had met my husband twice. He said, Mary, if you want to continue with that business, he said, I will help you. But he said, I want total commitment. And I was able to say to him, I happen to know something about total commitment. And half measures availeth you nothing. And so we started to sort out the business. We had five pages of creditors. I used to know them by heart. We had a lot of debts. But I had a, a friend who had stood up here, and um, he also had had a few financial reversals cease. I said to them, oh, they, uh, we had all kinds of problems. First, the bank came out, and the bank called the loan. And all the dignitaries and the lawyers and the accountants and God knows what met in the living room, and we are, what are we going to do, you know? And uh, the bank... All of a sudden, you can't write a check. You have no loan. The bank took the, the money that we had invested in the cattle and the cattle sales, and they paid off the loan and left me owing a lot of people that had invested money in our feedlot. So I said, well, can I make one phone call? The only person I knew who had had some financial reversals was Cecil. Because in those days, it wasn't common, you know. It, we didn't, people didn't have troubles like they do today. So I phoned Cecil and I talked to him for about 20 minutes and you know what he gave me? He gave me again the gift of enthusiasm. It's wonderful what we can do and give to each other. He said, Mary, I've been through it and you can go through it too and a day at a time. And I mean, he has his story of how he worked through it a day at a time. And, he, and so I went away from that telephone. It is so wonderful what we as just ordinary people can do and give to each other. And that was the gift again that he gave to me. And so then we had the next es escapade was we had these mortgages for heaven's sakes. You know, when you live with a person who drinks a lot and they, and they want to get ahead in their business, you, you borrow against everything. You borrow against your life insurance, you borrow against the land, you borrow against everything. And we have this prudential life insurance. I still have that prudential life insurance company anyway. And they don't have those great big rocks of Gibraltar on their letterhead for nothing. <laughs> and so this little accountant and I, we went to Winnipeg. That's where the office was. And they were going to seize all the land. And they were going to seize the whole business. And uh, anyway, and we went to visit some friends of his, some other accountants in Winnipeg. And they said we hadn't made the payments, of course. And they said there's no hope that, you know, they have every right because it's in the fine print on the bottom of the page. You know, be sure you look at that fine print on the bottom when you sign your name. And they said, you have no hope. So anyway, we went the next morning, and uh, I prayed. I think I almost prayed all night. Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of prayer. So in we go to see 
the managers or the bosses, I don't know what they were. I, there was three. I don't know if there was two. I don't know why there was three, but it seems to me there was three. Three big, old, bald-headed men behind this <laughs> oak desk. I was a lot younger, and I had a, a gray, tight, wool knit dress that I used to always wear when I went to the bank. <laughs> and I sat down in front of these desk and I pulled up my skirt and I crossed my legs and I started to talk and about three quarters of an hour later we came out of there and we had a deal <laughs> anyway don't ever underestimate that prayer works and then about 11 years later after this first accountant and I had made gone to the bank and had all our problems with them. The boys, somebody phoned from the SO office over at Elrose and they said, there's a box of flowers for you over here. And I couldn't think who was sending me flowers, but anyway, uh, one of the boys went over and here there came a box of flowers, a nice long box of sorted flowers and a note on the top and it said, this was 11 years later. He, they said, Mary Myers, today you have paid off the last of your creditors. So you do first things first and rigorous honesty. I, we still are, have relationships with the bank and believe me, I am rigorously honest with the bank. <laughs> and half measures availeth you nothing. And it, So this is how in the step 12, that you practice these principles of that little wee chapter of, of, of chapter 5 of how it works. And you practice those simple little principles and it works. And things worked out. It's, it, looking back, it's, it's, uh, it's almost unbelievable. And you, we have to do these things in our life. And then life goes on from there. It's, we still have that... Uh, we still have that business today. We've now we're trying to incorporate a grandson into the life of farming, which is absolutely, totally ridiculous because uh, we've written our whole crop off. The grasshoppers have eaten everything. But you know, for some reason, I have a totally different attitude. We went through it once before, and farming is a, is a series of cycles, and we have survived, and, and we will be taken care of. And I mean, then there's always the government, you know, there's Chrétien, he takes care of the Frenchman down east, but uh, that's a bit biased, but uh, <laughs> he'll take care of us. And uh, I have my family of four sons and four grandsons and two daughters and two granddaughters. And anyway, uh, the oldest son, the one that was the rebellious one, never underestimate the power of prayer. It's, it's no secret. I wish I could stand up here and say that we have a wonderful, harmonious family. But you know, that only is the fantasy that happens at Christmas. I don't, uh, that everybody loves each other. I mean, there's no secret in our household but that my oldest son and I should never have been meant to live in the same house. In fact, he had a few troubles with his father. I remember his, uh, I was in the bedroom back one day reading a book in the bedroom and Tommy said, he said, that child, he said, he just absolutely finishes me, you know. He said, I just, he said, if he wasn't bigger than I am, he said, I would have took a poke at him. And Tommy went over to the office, and then my oldest son came back, and he said, I sure got a mark on the wall with father, didn't I? 
you know, they push for buttons, and children are, are hard to raise. And anyway, this one, he's now, um, uh, there's been a lot of prayer said on my behalf, and I'm sure it's on his behalf. Now he has 28 years in Alana in AA. His wife is a good member of Al-Anon, and he phones me. He phoned me before I left home. He says that he loves me, and I can honestly say that I love him. And that hasn't come easily, because he always was the disturber in the family. Surely, to goodness, some of you people out there have the odd one that's a disturber <laughs> in your family. And you know what? When he got married, because we have a... You know what he did? He married into Billy, Billy's family, because, you know, you, you have to realize that when your kids get married, you're going to marry into family where there's a bit of alcohol, because that's where the action is. And there's lots of action in Billy's family, and so he marries into her family. And we, and we, so Billy and I are related. <laughs> and I'm very, very fond of Billy. And, uh, and then there's other ones. I can see my grandsons, they go spinning by, and uh, it's just like watching a bunch of bull calves. You can see the ones that are, they're going to have, they love alcohol. My whole family loves alcohol, and there's some of them behave a little differently. But you know, I can relax because we've got wonderful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in our family. We're in our community. We've got Al-Anon. We've got a lot of education programs. We've got a lot of help for alcoholism today. And we have a lot of public knowledge that I really believe is starting to work. I think we can hear the children call a spade a spade. I do, like Elsa says about my family, I release them with love. She used to say you can hold a little chicken in the palm of your hand and if and you don't crush it, you just hold it there out soft and it will look around and chirp and observe the world. And that's the way you have to do with your children. Or else about holding a rose. She said you hold a rose in your hand and you let it develop and open out to its own fruitation in its own time. And perhaps that's what we have to do with our children. And so I'm quite relaxed about my children now. And I said to them the other day, they all have health, they all have jobs, and they all have debts. So they're quite prepared to enter into the world. <laughs> and when I think back, of all the wonderful things we've had over 50 years, I was saying to this new friend I met last night, she, I said, I remember going to, you know, we have such wonderful AA and Al-Anon in, in Western Canada. We really, really do. We went to New Orleans. Cecil was the chairperson. Can you imagine being the chairperson of the world conference from all over the world? And they picked some little fellow from our woebegone prairies up here in the wilderness as the chairperson. And then he rides on a big, uh, you know, it was Mardi Gras time, or it was an emphasis, and he rode on this big, I don't know what you call it, the big platform, pardon? A float. And he was in a G-string, a mink <laughs> G-string, the king of the Mardi Gras, <laughs> a mink. This lady said to me, she said, last night I was telling her about this, she said it must have been quite a sight. <laughs> and then, you know, there was a fellow, the spiritual meeting on Sunday morning, there was a fellow called Max C., and we all knew him, and we knew him from the day he had come in to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he stood up in that huge, wherever we were in that auditorium, that was not a huge rink, 
And he stood up in front of that 60, 65,000 people and he said, my name is Max C and I'm an alcoholic. And that's the simplicity of our program. It's the same way as what he stood up in Rosetown and came to speak to us and said, my name is Max C. And this, he's one of the people we have lost, but it, it doesn't really matter because this is the way the program goes on. We just, each of us, in our own simple way, stand up here and tell what has happened to us. And through the power of prayer and friendship and help from each of you, what we have. And you know, I'm so thankful. What if the dear man upstairs, instead of giving us this AA and Al-Anon program in 1935, what if he hadn't given it to us until 2035? How come we're so truly blessed that we have this program today. And it's, it's such a simple program. You know, you, you, uh, the alcoholic is so, I mean, we need Al-Anon so desperately because you people are so exotic or spun out or I don't know what, you know, <laughs> that we have to find our own strength someplace to live with you. And of course, we want to live with you because we love you and then we give birth to you. And there's, it's hard to accept that your children are doing all these silly things too, you know. But you have to have faith that they will find their own program in their own time. And I and ever, ever underestimate, I had another little experience with love. You know, God is love and, and that's what we have here. It's so simple and that's what confounds people, like the ministry and the doctors and everything, that it's just each of us simply caring about each other. And this thing of love, like I made these six lunches, it was years ago, but it, it really struck home to me. I was making these lunches for school, school lunches, and the bus comes, and, and they were awfully boring lunches. And anyway, just then the radio came over, and came over the radio, it says, put a little love in your life today. So anyway, as I packed these six little lunch boxes, I, uh, I just sort of mentally tried to put a little love in each lunch box as I closed them. And the day went on and everything was fine. And you know, all of a sudden, the bus came home at four o'clock in the afternoon and there was one particular little, my third son, little bright-eyed, brown-eyed boy, and he came running across the sidewalk just as fast as he could, and he said, Oh, Mother, that was the best lunch you ever gave to me today. So don't ever underestimate the power of love and how it works in our everyday life. And so, as I say, my life is it's just wonderful to be here today. My sponsor's here. I consider Cecil my... my um, financial sponsor. I have two other sponsors with me. I consider Billy, I don't know if that's wise or not, I consider her my sexual sponsor. She always, says, she always, we talk a lot about it, she says, Mary, you women have choice, you know. So life is full. I have a letter from my daughter and I think it says all of what we have here today and it, it is so, we are so truly blessed to have what we have here today. And my daughter, she's had reversals in her life, my oldest daughter, she wrote me a letter one time and she said, Mother, I don't know anything that I have to send to you for your birthday, but she said, I would like to tell you what you have given me. She said, you and Father gave me life and then you taught me how to live, which is the meaning of life and the essence of living.
And isn't that what we really have here today? The meaning and life and the essence of living. Because if we don't have love and we don't have each other, there's no essence of living. And so we're so very, very truly blessed today. Thank you.